Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that we have one more night to gather again and study in your word. I thank you that the word has the power in all of us, Father, to show us the truth of things that until we see them in the Bible, we, we are ignorant of them or we discount them. And thank you, Father, that you're so wise and so sovereign that you've embedded in your word truths that last more than one lifetime, that span generations, that span millennia, that span your entire creation. Thank you, Father, that tonight in Nehemiah we'll see that, that you've shown it once again in your word for us tonight. And I pray that we would represent it properly. I'd speak it truthfully and the spirit would work in me to bring these things out in the proper way. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. From the beginning of our study, we've said that Nehemiah's task was not to build a wall or to secure a city. He was drawn to Jerusalem to accomplish these tasks, certainly, and he has focused his efforts on those things since he arrived. But by the end of chapter 7, as we saw last week, Nehemiah had achieved those things. But those tasks were just the backdrop for what is the real purpose in Nehemiah's call. The Lord called this man to minister to his people. When he came to Israel, the city was in ruins. The people were living a meager existence. They were under attack and they lacked a purpose. But the Lord had freed Israel and returned them to the land for a reason. But as long as they were sitting in this destitute situation in despair... They were not fulfilling that purpose, and so God sent them a leader. In fact, he sent them many leaders. He sent Zerubbabel, but now, of course, we're studying Nehemiah. And as we said, Nehemiah's mission was not to build a wall. He was there to build up the people. And now that there is a temple constructed, and now that the wall is finished, and now that the city is inhabited again, we might ask, is it time for Nehemiah to go home? But the answer, of course, is no, because as we're going to see today, his mission has not yet been accomplished. All the pieces are there, yes, but the temple and the wall and even the bustling city are not the measures of success in God's economy. Those things are, at best, a means to an end. The end is the restoration of God's people in worshiping God through a life of obedience to his word, loving God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength and loving one another. That's the true measure of success. And that's what a leader is designed or intended by God to produce. So with all those pieces in place, Nehemiah begins leading the people into a proper relationship with the Lord, who has brought them back to the land for this reason. And at the conclusion of chapter 7, we're told that the people have settled into the city and that they've arrived there now, and it's in the seventh month. And that mention of the seventh month at the end of chapter 7 is significant. The final feasts of the Jewish calendar, the last three of the feasts on the Jewish calendar, are all conducted in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. Those feasts are the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or Booths. All three of those feasts occur here in this seventh month. And as we're going to see tonight, the events that surround this month in chapters 8, 9, and 10 tell the story of the culmination of Nehemiah's leadership and the achievement of his mission in restoring Israel. But more importantly, they're also going to show a beautiful picture of Israel in a future day. So in chapters 8 through 10, all of these chapters taking place in this important seventh month, you'll see a series of examples of Israel being restored, a series of of steps in that restoration. In chapter 8, Nehemiah assembles the people for a reading of the Torah and explaining its meaning. Then in chapter 9, we'll witness the people joyously celebrating what they've learned in a moment of corporate prayer and worship. And then in chapter 10, next week, 
we'll see the people we'll see the people declaring a corporate commitment to obeying God. And across all of these chapters, you're seeing the true mission of a godly leader at work to edify God's people for service. So let's begin in chapter eight, verses one and onward. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men, women and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra, the scribe, stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mataniah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah and Messiah on his right hand and Pedaiah, Mishael, Malkajah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hobadiah, Maasiah, Kelida, Azariah, Josabab, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. This scene fulfills a requirement in the law. The law of Moses required that the people of Israel would come together to hear the reading of the law once every seven years. Moses stipulated this requirement in Deuteronomy 31. It comes near the conclusion of the law. Let me read that for you. In Deuteronomy 31.10, Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and the children and the alien who is in your town so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. So these gatherings happen once every seven years, according to God's law. You see one of those moments here now in Nehemiah's day. They were covenantal renewal moments. This is a time when the covenant was renewed for the sake of the nation of Israel. Now, renewal was not an option. Uh, They couldn't opt out of these moments, of course. The moment was repeated, though, so that the people could hear the law and be familiar with what's in it. And as the text says, so that they would come to fear the Lord and obey it. Now, the renewal was not prescribed for a certain day in the seventh month. The text I read said it must simply take place at a time of year of remission of debts and of the Feast of Booths. Now, the remission of debts refers to the Feast of Atonement, which happens early in the seventh month. And it's also said to be around the Feast of Booths, but that comes later in the seventh month. So that would tell us that the requirement was that the law be read somewhere in the first half of the seventh month. As you can see in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra wastes no time at all, for he assembles them on the very first day of the seventh month to begin this reading. Now, interestingly, this is Ezra's first appearance in the story of Nehemiah. I said at the outset of the book of Nehemiah that 
Nehemiah and Ezra were contemporaries. In fact, I think it's, it's my belief that Ezra was the scribe who penned the book of Nehemiah, although he wrote it in Nehemiah's voice. So here we see Ezra, and notice he is still acting as the teaching leader over these people, even after Nehemiah had arrived on the scene. I want, to take, I want you to take note of that. Nehemiah's arrival did not mean the end of Ezra's leadership role. It seems clear from this example that God raises up men with different skills to perform different roles within the body of Christ, or in this case, in the nation of Israel. Israel, we know, was a gifted teacher, and he led people from that position of intellectual strength when he was the only man on the scene. But now that Nehemiah has arrived, it's apparent that Ezra has yielded his authority over the people to Nehemiah, recognizing that Nehemiah was anointed and called for that role. And yet, Ezra retained his teaching responsibility. So men like Nehemiah and Ezra work together as the Lord appoints to lead God's people. And notice the leader of the congregation, in this case we might say that's Nehemiah, need not be the teacher also of the flock, and vice versa. The teacher of the flock, which is clearly Nehemiah in this case, he does not have to be the chief administrator over the people or over a church. So often today, it's common for us to see one man who tries to take on both roles within the body of Christ, both the leader of the people as well as the chief teacher of the people. But in my experience, it's rare to find a man who is equally good at both roles. Or another way to say it is, It's very rare to find your best teacher is also your best administrator and leader and that your best administrator and leader is also your best teacher. More often, those roles will be split. Your congregation will find your best leader on one hand and then another person who is the best equipped teacher. And if those two men would work together in the leading of God's people, they could each specialize in what they're good at and the body would benefit. Or at least that's how it should be unless egos are getting in the way. Looking at the scene again, Israel, we're told, gathers the people in the city. They're standing at a point in the city called the Water Gate, and they're doing it here on the first day of the seventh month. And then in verse one, it's interesting to note that the people themselves are asking Ezra that the book of the law be brought out to them and read to them. That's an indication of the people being eager to learn what is in God's word and to look forward to the instruction of it. And in their case, this is a generation of people who are largely ignorant of their own word, Uh, that since the exile, they've had very little access to it, I presume, and they have not had corporate worship moments of this type, it would appear. And certainly going before the exile, the nation of Israel had largely forsaken the word of God. So this is a moment in which the people are being given the opportunity to know all that's in it, and they seem eager to grow closer to God through his word. And then what follows in this scene has become the basis for Jewish synagogue services ever since. The pattern you see here was probably established during the exile when the people were in Babylon, but yet without a temple and without any way to enjoy temple service. And it's still a common form of of worship today. This is the common order of worship you'll see among Orthodox Jews worshiping in synagogues today. And the pattern is also instantly recognizable for Christians today. I mean, consider what we just read. There is a gathering of people for a service. There is a reading of God's word. The people stand. A leader offers praise, people respond, and finally, the people receive instruction through an oral explanation of the word, followed by an exhortation to live according to what they have just heard. And then, as we're going to see in the next passage, after the gathering, they all go away for a fellowship meal. This is just like Sunday service for us, isn't it? 
All of these elements, by and large, still exist. It's a common pattern in the church, or at least it should be. Now, we know new ideas come in from time to time, and people's worship services vary from place to place, and that's fine. But the basic formula hasn't changed. Where it has changed, unfortunately, it's largely changed in diminishing or de-emphasizing the place of God's word in the gathering. For example, in many churches today, it's no longer even read. And in those where it is read to any degree, it's often not explained properly, if it's explained at all. And it's fair to say that the explaining, the expositing of God's word is no longer the highlight of most church services It's not the thing that has the most prominent position or role, or uh, it's certainly not the thing people's focus is on in many cases today. Today it's things like the music, or it's a drama, or it's something else. But God's word is not at the center. Let's take a moment and revisit what we see happening in this situation, in this chapter, and let's understand why it is such a valued prescription for worship. Beginning in verse 2, we see Ezra bringing the law before everyone in the nation. And notice it says that it's for everyone who could listen with understanding. Only children who were at such an early age that they could not understand what was to be read, only that group would have been excluded from this gathering and from the teaching that followed. And it makes sense that they would be excluded because if they cannot get any value out of what's being read, well, of course, they are just likely to become a disruption for those who are trying to listen. But apart from them... Everyone else who could understand is expected to listen. Unlike today when we take our oldest and our youngest and our middles and our teens and our whatevers and we separate them all out and we have to appeal to each in some individual way, it would appear. In this day, we appreciate that all who can understand the word have an equal reason to be there and to benefit from it. And then next, Ezra reads from the word, as we're told, as is required. But notice he reads from early morning to midday. Now, just estimating that, that's roughly about five hours, or maybe longer of time, depending on how early they began. Five hours. Ezra stood and read, and the people stood and listened for five hours to the reading of God's word. And that time period seems about right when you consider that he's reading from the first five books of our Bible. That's a lot there. It would take probably that long to read through it out loud. Now, they're standing because... That's a sign of respect. You notice in the passage I read that as he opens the book, all the people stand. And that's a sign of of respect and reverence. But it's also a sign of attentiveness. And in fact, the text says they gave their full attention to this reading. Now, can you imagine something like that happening in our churches today? Most Christians fidget in the pews if they're made to sit for a sermon longer than 20 minutes these days. If someone teaches for 30 or 40 minutes, it's considered an imposition on our schedule. And heaven forbid children are required to sit still for that long in most cases today. Is it the case that we've changed or that children have changed that much over the course of history? Or is it just that our expectations on ourselves and on our children have changed? I suggest it's our expectations and that the reading of God's word is worthy of that kind of time commitment. Even if we don't spend five hours listening to it on a daily basis, still it's an example of what people who are hungry to know God through his word are willing to do. People say it's unreasonable to expect Christians to sit through a 60 minute sermon or to attend a two hour church service where those things might still happen today. But I find it interesting that the same people who would say that they can't sit for a 60 minute sermon or a two hour church service will gladly sit through a three hour Hollywood blockbuster without giving it a second thought. How important is the word of God to us? That's really the question. 
And then next we see Ezra standing. And notice he's standing behind a wooden podium or a wooden pulpit. And around him stood elders and leaders of the people. Now, that's an immediately recognizable scene for all of us who've attended church even one day. A man preaching to us concerning God's word from behind a pulpit. So don't let anyone tell you that the tradition of a preacher teaching from the pulpit from the word of God is some modern invention or contrivance or even that it's a dispensable anachronism from old days. It is something eternal, even in its own right. It's something from the beginning that God has chosen to use to communicate his truth from the mouths of preachers to the ears of his people. There is something powerful about being preached to from the word of God. There is something moving. There is something immediate. There is something tangible there. You know, some people will tell me that they'll prefer to listen to the teaching that we have online because it's made available there for free and it's so easy to access. And they'll prefer it so much that they'll cease coming to the live classes if they have that option. And I tell people that that is a mistake. And it's not one of pride or ego on my part to say this. I don't believe. I believe it from what I read in the word of God, that God has purposed that hearing someone preach in your presence, having a live experience of hearing a preacher is a special thing in God's purpose. And he has enabled it to have a power that is not necessarily going to be there in every other case. Now, I'm not saying that the word of God preached through the the Internet or a TV show can't be effective. That's not my point. But that is not a substitute for being in the presence of other believers under the tutelage of someone who knows the word of God and hearing them preach to you in that immediate way that grabs us when we see it happen in front of us, where the word of God will come to our heart in a fresh way with power to change us and to engage our emotions and to engage our personality in the moment where we don't get that opportunity when we're listening in a sterile and distant way through the Internet or on TV. Paul says in First Corinthians, chapter one, verse twenty one, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe that it is through the preaching of the word of God that he brings those who will believe. So we see him preaching from a pulpit. Next, we see the people are drawn to a heart of worship through the reading of the word. You notice the people are bowing down to the ground. They're crying amen and they're worshiping. And in this moment, you see an object lesson of what worshiping in spirit, in truth looks like because of what they've heard, because of the impact of the preaching and of the word of God upon their hearts. They are moved in spirit to a position of what appears to be repentance and humility and worship. And it's proof to us that the truth of God's word is a powerful tool to bring the heart closer to God. In fact, there is no greater tool to accomplish that. For all that men seek in all the imagined ways they have for bringing men into a life of righteousness, into a reconciliation with God, there is no substitute for the preaching of God's word. And then lastly, in this example process, in this model of worship, we see the elders of Israel following Ezra from the reading of the word to an explanation of the word. It's important to note that the explanation or we would say the exposition or the preaching of the word of God is done by other men than Ezra. Ezra took the job of reading for five hours, and I imagine after five hours he was pretty tired. So he hands the job over to the elders to do an exposition or an explanation of the word of God. 
This reminds us of why Paul said that our elders should be men who are able to teach. It's important that we have a plurality of leaders in the church who are all equally capable in their knowledge of the word and in their capacity to explain what it says. And so we see that principle here at work. But notice again the patience and the interest of the people. They've just had a five-hour reading of the text of the Bible, and that has now given way to multiple sermons concerning the meaning of what was written. I wish I could have been there to hear what the elders of Israel said as they explained the word. Wouldn't you like to have heard that? What insight did God give them about the stories of Genesis or about the experiences of, of Israel in Egypt or about their time of wandering? I wonder if any of the stories in the law that the exiles heard as they were listening to the reading of the law, I wonder if any of those stories gave them deja vu having just come out of a period of exile, a period of captivity, and then into a city of ruins, and then now in a sense of security. I wonder if they began to see the pattern of what God did to Israel in the first case and what he is now doing with them here. This whole prescription, this whole model that we see laid out here in the beginning of chapter 8, this is what we should want for ourselves or for any child of God, whether the one being restored or one who's never strayed. We want to be led by men who will draw us into a moment of this kind, a moment of sincere fellowship and sincere worship. That's what we should want for. We want men who are leading by and through the word of God, as Ezra did. And we need men who will call us to be sacrificial and to exercise discipline so we have a patience to hear the word of God, which is what Nehemiah did. And we need to be moved by that word and be humbled and come to our point, come to the point that we worship God through his word. And we need men who will explain the things we've heard so that we can understand and follow them in obedience. That's what we all want. That's the purpose in the gathering. And that's the reason why we have men who lead us. God is faithful to give us men like that. Whether we know it or not around us, there are men God has equipped to give us that kind of godly leadership, to bring us to the point where our life is marked by that kind of sincere and honest worship. The problem has never been God's faithfulness to provide those men. It's always been our willingness to seek after them and when we find them, to listen to them. Because Nehemiah and Ezra have come. They have done their part and the people have been blessed as we've seen here. We likewise have the chance to do our part as leaders for the people around us or even just as followers. It is easier for other believers to do the right thing when those around them are doing so as well. We can be a part of that pattern. Now, the entire day, as we've just seen it laid out, this is all one day. This is all still the first day of the month. This day has been so moving for the people that it's going to lead them into a period of weeping as a response to the sermons they've heard and to the word that's been read. The tears we're going to see in this next section are tears probably of a combination of thankfulness and maybe even a bit of regret, certainly of conviction, they're thankful for God's faithfulness, certainly, but they also regret their own actions, probably their, their ancestors' actions, and in the way Israel generally has tested the Lord's patience over all these years. But most of all, they're moved by the Spirit, by the Lord working in them through his word. But notice now that though they've heard these things and, re- and responded with tears, Nehemiah is going to call them to turn those tears to joy. Look at verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For the day is holy to our Lord. 
Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Nehemiah tells the people that this day, the day they've experienced, is a holy day for the Lord, and they are to use this day to honor his faithfulness. So he tells the people to feast and to celebrate and to know the joy of the Lord instead of the weeping that they had experienced. In fact, Nehemiah says the joy in their Lord, the joy they have in the Lord, has been their strength in the day of their trials. And so they are to respond now. And he he says they are to go into a period of feasting, into a celebration, to end their weeping and to usher in joy. Now, notice the words Nehemiah speaks in verse 10. These words are especially important to understanding the prophetic significance of this passage. Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is Israel's strength. But the phrase joy of the Lord is a reference to Christ. It's a prophetic reference to Christ. Christ is the joy of the Father. And so the, defra- the whole phrase is a description of Christ. We could say that the Lord Christ is Israel's strength. It's also our clue to see this entire scene in chapter 8 as a picture of another future restoration of Israel that is to come in the last days. This is another time in which Israel is going to encounter the joy of the Lord, bringing strength to her. It's also another time in which Israel is going to be under stress, under trial, in a time of mourning. And yet, that mourning will be turned to joy, followed by a period of restoration and feasting. So on this future day that I'm speaking of, Israel will be under great distress because of a man called the Antichrist who will be attacking Israel in the very last days of a period called tribulation. He will bring all the nations of the earth to surround the city of Jerusalem and his intent will be to destroy the Jews. But that attack comes in the midst of a movement of God to defend the city. So we're going to begin to look at some of this of what the Bible has to say about this future day for Israel. And I want you to consider how the the events of Nehemiah 8 are picturing those later events of tribulation. And we'll start in Zechariah, Zechariah 12, verses 3 through 9, reading about the way the attack begins. Verse 3, it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. This scene in Zechariah 12 is describing a point in which Israel is under attack from all directions, fearing their own destruction at the hands of the Antichrist. You'll remember earlier in the book of Nehemiah, we saw the point in which Israel's enemies began to attack the city, trying to stop the rebuilding of the wall. And if we remember, all sides of Israel were attacked. The neighbors from all four sides of the city were involved in the the attack. That's a picture of what we see described here, in which the nations of the earth will come against Israel. 
But then we notice that the Lord's strength will defend the city, that the people will rise up in defense of their city, but they do so in a supernatural strength that God gives them. And they succeed in defending the city against terrible odds as a result. Just as earlier in the book of Nehemiah, we saw Israel defending the walls from attack, and they did so also, we're told, with the strength of the Lord. Nehemiah told them that they were successful because the Lord gave them that victory. So once again, their ability to defend the city comes from the Lord, both in Nehemiah's day and again in this future day. Then it says, in that day, the people will be moved by the word of God as delivered by the Spirit. Going a little further down in Zechariah, the next verse, 12.10, we read this. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they've pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So Nehemiah says the people living in Israel, in Jerusalem, will come to understand that Jesus was their Messiah, that through the influence of the Holy Spirit, they will be looking into the word of God, and in the word they will read of the man Jesus who fulfilled the prophecies said to be the Messiah. And as a result, they will understand that they have disobeyed the word of God and that they have not understood Jesus as Christ. And they will mourn the fact that their ancestors in Israel crucified their Lord. And they mourn that reaction. This is comparable to the mourning that we just saw in Nehemiah's day. They mourn for their sins and the sins of their fathers, having seen what God's word has to say. And just as that will happen in a future Israel, we see it here in Nehemiah's day. The people being moved to tears in recognition of their own sin under the covenant. So the future Israel is humbled by what they learn in the word to the point of weeping and tears, just as this Israel is being moved in a similar fashion. But in another parallel, we see Nehemiah asking the people to leave behind their weeping and come to a place of joy in a holy day of the Lord. And so it will be again in that future Israel. They will trade their tears for joy at the appearance of their Lord. Zechariah 14 tells us of this chapter 14, verse two. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured and the houses plundered. The women ravished and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And then go down to verse 8. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. So the Lord's return for Israel comes at the very end of tribulation as the nation is at the last stages of their battle with the Antichrist and as they defend their city and as they are moved to weeping in their recognition that they have crucified their Messiah and as they are repenting of that sin, we see the Lord return and defend the city in person and then set up his kingdom. He establishes his kingdom on earth and the people of Israel are at the center of it. 
That story is explained in much greater detail for those who might be interested in our Revelation study, and I would encourage you to take that study if you're interested in knowing more about all of these events. But back to our parallel. So in the future day, Israel goes from a period of weeping to a period of joy at having received their Messiah, seeing him return and seeing the beginning of their kingdom. And now back in Nehemiah 8, we see a very similar kind of pattern, only it culminates in a feast celebrating the joy of the Lord. And that feast that we're about to see celebrated in chapter 8 of Nehemiah is the Feast of Booths. And that in itself is another parallel. For the very first event of the kingdom, the very first thing that will happen for Israel after the Lord returns and sets up the Messianic kingdom is the Feast of Booths. Zechariah 14, chapter 14, verse 16, we read this. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So the Feast of Booths memorializes Israel's wanderings in the desert, but it's observed after Israel has reached the Promised Land. The first time the Feast of Booths is observed is after the wanderings of Israel in the desert. It is to be celebrated by those who have already received their permanent home. Because it's a reminder that they used to be wandering in the desert. They used to be wandering in a temporary place where they had no permanent dwellings. And so the feast symbolizes that wandering period, the wandering of the desert for Israel in the time of Moses prior to them crossing the Jordan. And it represents the Jews living on earth prior to entering the kingdom. And that life we live now is a life in a temporary home while we await our permanent home. We're told this is not a country of ours. This is a place we wander in. And so when they enter into the kingdom, they celebrate the Feast of Booths as a reminder of their time wandering. So let's go back to Nehemiah 8, starting in verse 13. Then on the second day, the heads of the father's households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches and myrtle branches, palm branches and branches of every leafy tree to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day. And there was great rejoicing. So following that that long day of hearing the word of God at the water gate, that was all one day, that was all the first day of the month, Now, on the second day of the month, we see the heads of the households of the families of Israel intrigued to learn more about what they've heard. And specifically, what they remember is hearing of something in the reading of God's law concerning a festival in the seventh month of the year. And so now they've returned to Ezra to ask questions and to know more about this feast that is supposed to happen in the seventh month. And with Ezra's help, the leaders of the households of Israel find in the law in the word of God, the commandment that the sons of Israel should celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now, remember, these are people who have not celebrated this. We're told in the text that they had not celebrated this since the time of Joshua, that the whole nation had put this feast aside for all of that time. 
So these are people who have no idea about this feast or what it's about or why it should be celebrated. But they heard it. And it's a good example of their attentiveness that in one day's reading of the word, they were able to come away with this piece of information, recognizing the date and say to themselves, we need to know more. So having confirmed what they heard, now they know what to do. And so they go out into amongst the people. They circulate a proclamation, we're told, so that everyone would be preparing for this feast because they know it's coming quickly and they have to get ready for it. So they command that everyone go out and start collecting the branches and all the materials they need to create what are essentially these little tents of natural materials. So this booth was like a a tent that everyone constructed. And during the seven days of this feast, Israel essentially abandoned its permanent homes for a chance to camp out for a week in these tents, in these temporary structures. And doing so reminded them of all the time they lived in the desert wandering without a permanent home. Everywhere you could fit one of these structures, they set one of them up. You notice in the text it said they had them all over the city, all these different places by different gates. They made booths, they set them up wherever they could, and they occupied them. And you'll also notice it's a time of great joy. Have you ever had kids who, who wanted to go out in the backyard and just put up the tent and sleep out in the backyard for the fun of it? Or, or even when you go camping somewhere, there's a joy to that. There's something about it that makes it fun. But it's joy because you know you have a permanent home to go back to. It's not fun if it's your only home. And that's the difference here. This is a chance for them to enjoy being out of their permanent home in a fun way, in a celebratory way, in a communal way. And you can imagine what that scene must have looked like. People sitting outside with fires like we would do or singing songs and uh, doing other things in a, in a worshipful sense in the case of the Israelites. And it became a joy to do this as a remembrance of God's faithfulness. This was something they did after the time of Exodus when they entered in the joy of Canaan. It is true here as you see the exiles occupying a city that is secure now under the leadership of Nehemiah. And as we keep Illustrating, this is also true in the future Israel when they enter into the Messianic kingdom in joy under the leadership of Christ. They're going to celebrate the Feast of Booths there once more. And that is its ultimate fulfillment. That is when it finally meets its purpose. So they're in the the Feast of Booths period. And then in verse 18, we read Ezra read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day. There was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. So notice even during this feast, they're still listening to the word of God every day. It seems they could not get enough of it. The love the people had for God's word was evident. And the feast lasted seven days, during which time they heard the word of God throughout that time. But then we're told on the eighth day that the nation holds a solemn Assembly. Now, this is not something required under the law. There's no requirement for a solemn assembly after the Feast of Booths. This is something that the people seem to be doing spontaneously. Now, what would explain this? Well, it appears, based on what's written in verse 18, that there's a connection between the reading of God's word on a daily basis for them during this time of the feast and their decision to have a solemn assembly at the conclusion. You have to remember, this is a generation of people who have not been exposed to God's word. And yet over the last week, they have had an exposure like none other. They have heard the entirety of the law read to them. They've heard sermons expounding on its meaning. And then during a period of joy, day after day, they were listening to the word of God. 
They have heard this reading and this explanation and they have discovered things they've never known. The first reading of God's word led them to know of the Feast of Booths. And now for this next seven days, they have been exposed to even more. And that discovery has completely changed their lives. It has led them to ask fundamental questions about the power of God's word to deal with their life, to orchestrate and order their life. And now the question remains, what must they do with what they've learned? How will the instructions in God's word change their lifestyle? And they have reflected on this now for seven days and they have come to a conclusion that they are to live their lives under the guidance of God's word. This is the first generation in many to consider this to have the freedom and the opportunity to live in this way. And it's been even longer since anyone in Israel has ever tried to do this. So after the feast, on the first day after the feast, the people are moved corporately to recommit in prayer and in repentance to a life lived according to God's word. And that's what we see now in chapter 9. This is the prayer that I said you would see in connection with the earlier moment of the reading of God's word. So now we move to the prayer and the repentance of Israel in consideration of the word. Verses 1 through 4. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Now, on the Levites' platform stood Yeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Boni, Sherebiah, Benai, Chinani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. So after the seven days of the feast, we see what appears to be a great spiritual revival taking hold in Israel. Now, the word revival gets thrown around a lot, gets thrown around much too often, in my opinion, because a revival, a, revival, a true revival, cannot be manufactured, and it cannot be timed to suit our desires. We do not call these things up when we desire them. It is a work of the Spirit that can only come when the Lord desires. But it's evidently happening here in Israel. And in this case, we can understand why it's happening. The Lord's been leading Israel to this moment over the past 100 years, and even before that, as he brought them into captivity. This is a work of restoration, and here you see it reaching its climactic end. This is what's been building through the whole of both Ezra and Nehemiah. The people seeking the Lord with all their hearts in humility, having heard the word of God. And also in this moment, through this confession, you are seeing a picture of the moment of Jewish repentance that precipitates the Lord's return for Israel at the end of tribulation. This is yet another parallel uh, between the events here and the events that are to come. The Jews in this day had already heard Ezra read from the law from the first day of this month. And when he did that, he would have read Leviticus chapter 26. And when he was reading through Leviticus chapter 26, Ezra would have reached a very interesting portion of the law in that chapter. And the nation of Israel would have heard Ezra read this Leviticus 26, 40. The Lord says, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then 
I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. So in the law, the Lord promised to Israel that in a future day, when the whole nation turns to him with their hearts humbled and when they confess their sins and more than that, they have to confess the sins of their forefathers in the way that they were disobedient to the commands of the covenant. Then if they do those things, the Lord says he will remember his covenant with Abraham. And they are also to understand that they acted in hostility against God through those acts of disobedience. And moreover, that when they spent time in exile in the land of their enemies, that they were seeing God's response to that sin on the part of Israel, to that disobedience. If they were to make those connections, if they were to understand all of those things, and then if that was to lead to their repentance, then the Lord says he will remember the covenant that he gave to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the Abrahamic covenant. And that covenant promised that he would send a seed to bless Israel. And that seed, of course, is Christ so that he would give them the leader they wanted and the promises he's extended them in the kingdom. Now, at this moment here, the people in Israel have heard that promise and they have heard that this is a promise concerning how Israel will be sent into the land of their enemies, but then restored. And they look at their surroundings and they recognize that they have been restored in faith to those promises. And so in hearing Leviticus 26, they respond. They respond by confessing their iniquities, as we are told in Nehemiah 9, 3. And we'll see more of that coming, in fact, In the next chapter. Now, in response to this confession, we're told the Lord will send the seed. The ultimate fulfillment of that promise comes at the end of tribulation. When Israel is moved by the spirit to confess and look upon the one whom they have pierced and have that repentant moment, then they will see their seed, the Christ that is promised, return for them and set up the kingdom. But. Here you see a lesser form of that. In fact, another stage of that promise being fulfilled for in response to this confession, the one we're seeing happen now in Nehemiah, the Lord will, in fact, send the seed that he promised. It will be Christ coming in his first coming, which comes just a short time after this confession. In fact, this scene, this part of Nehemiah is the last events of the Old Testament, chronologically speaking, before The coming of Christ after this moment of Israel in Nehemiah's day, the next thing we have in the Bible chronologically is Matthew and the arrival of the seed. So the arrival of Christ in keeping with the covenant God made is the result of this confession. But of course, it's not the full fulfillment of it. The the final fulfillment comes in the way God brings Christ a second time after the nation once again confesses their sin in tribulation. Now, what follows in the rest of this chapter is that prayer of repentance and of worship. But it begins with a beautiful retelling of what they have learned. So if you want to see evidence that they were attentive during the reading of God's word, I want you to notice just how much detail they've absorbed already from the history that's represented in that book. We'll begin in chapter nine, verse five. Then the Levites, Deshua, Kadmiel, Benai, Hashabanai, Sherebiah, Hobadiah, Sheshbaniah, Pethahiah said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, 
the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes and law through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for your thirst. Indeed, forty years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. You also gave them their kingdoms and peoples, and allotted them to them as a boundary. They took possession of the land in Sihon the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land, which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And you gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. They captured fortified cities in a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled, and grew fat and reveled in your great goodness. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of your oppressors who opposed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore, you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he shall live. 
And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. This retelling competes with Stephen's testimony in Acts for the most thorough and yet concise retelling of Israel's history in the Old Testament. This is a beautiful recapping of all that you could read in the Old Testament concerning Israel's history. Many of the phrases that are included in this retelling can be found in the Psalms or or elsewhere in the law. So it's clear the people have learned something. They've been listening. And they've taken a lot away from it. And it's influenced their thinking. And not only have they come to understand their own history better, that, that's for sure, but they've also come to understand God better and to appreciate him better. And that's the purpose. That's the reason why we learn the Bible. That's the reason we study. It's to come to know more about God. And in this case, you can see they emphasize his long-suffering character in the face of sin and his willingness to forgive time and time again and to show mercy time and time again. But you also see he is willing eventually to act to discipline his children when necessary. And then after all of that, we see his faithfulness to restore. These are the lessons they've learned in the listening to the word of God and in considering their own history. But the lessons focus on God and on his character and on his nature. So having seen his faithfulness, the people now make an appeal to him for mercy in light of their ongoing situation. And that situation is the oppression of Persia over Israel. Verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, You are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions, which you have admonished us. But they in their own kingdom, with your great goodness, which you gave them, with the broad and rich land, which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites and our priests. So their prayer of confession ends with a statement of their sin, but also of a request for God's mercy. Notice the people ask the Lord to recognize and remember that they are still suffering in significant ways. But it's also important to notice that they aren't blaming God. It's very clear that they say these things have come upon us because of our sin. But then again, they ask God if he would relinquish from these judgments because they're still living a very difficult existence in Jerusalem. They still have the worry of other nations attacking them. They are not rulers over their own land. They work for a king. They have the king taking some of the wealth of their land and so on. And they'd like God to change that. But unfortunately, according to the prophecy of Daniel, this isn't even close to ending for Israel at this stage. In fact, they still have millennia remaining under this judgment. In the near future, the Persian oppression is going to give way to Greek oppression. 
And then after that, the Greek oppression is going to give way to Roman rule. And then the Roman rule is really still ongoing. It's just evolved over the millennia and continues in a modern form. But in general, Israel is still under the oppression of Gentile rulers, according to what is prescribed in Daniel, that the age of the Gentiles would continue until the second coming of Christ. And only then will Israel finally be in their land in peace, ruled by the Messiah. While the people of Nehemiah's day do not understand, it seems that this is something that must go for much longer. They nevertheless, they appeal for God's mercy. They acknowledge they are where they are because of their own sin. And they are asking that he would relinquish in those curses. One day he will answer that prayer. But in the way we've already seen, this scene is a picture of a later scene in Israel. And it's in that later moment at the end of tribulation that God does finally relent in these curses because the Messiah arrives. Now, in the next chapter, the people are going to recommit to living according to the word of God. They're going to commit to never repeating the sins of their fathers under the law. And interestingly, they mostly succeed at keeping that word. Never again does a generation of Israel participate in pagan worship or in idolatry of the sort that they practiced prior to the captivity. They mostly obey the law. Now, obviously, no one obeys it perfectly, and that's not the point. But they get away from the pattern that's reflected here in this confession. They no longer find themselves slipping into idolatry and then being chastised by God and then being brought back and so on. They escape that pattern, it would appear, from this point forward until... The Messiah. Now, they make one huge mistake, of course, in rejecting their Messiah. But that, again, was also part of God's plan. But it is from this moment forward that Israel ceases to be a nation that falls into idolatry. And instead, it becomes a nation that does not receive the Messiah and is rejected for a time. And that judgment will continue until the events that we read in Zechariah 12. We'll see that next week when we get to chapter 10. Let's go to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you show us these things of the future and of the past, and you show us how you've linked them together in your wisdom. Let that confidence, Father, drive us, drive us to to understand your control of all things, even those things that bother us in our life today. That if we see you working in such grand ways with a nation over millennia, certainly we can know that you work in a day of our life and in the short span of our time on earth. Let us have that confidence. Let us rest in that. Let us live according to your word as these people said they would do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.